Welcome to Proto Future, the world's first and most supremely opinionated enthusiast podcast for modern American passenger rail, transit, urbanism, walk and bikeability, inclusivity, and equity. In this episode, I'll tell you about my personal history and how I deconverted myself from being a car-brained suburbanite into model railroading's foremost, largely due to only, urbanism and transit advocate. Chapter 1. White Picket Fences The first memories that I have that were from my adult self were in Provo, Utah, unironically named Happy Valley. I am not a moron, sick. We did not grow up knowing what the morons were until we moved there. While my initial career goal was to become Pope or a Swiss guard at the Vatican, seeing the indefensibly arbitrary lifestyle decisions of the morons was enough to avert me from the concept of religion entirely, and I've since kicked the habit of any sort of spiritualism in any form, except for that of standing trackside eye-level to a well-maintained steam locomotive at speed. To those who don't know, moronism is, quote, the fastest growing religion in the world, unquote. The reason for which not being their aggressive missionarying, appropriately lampooned on Broadway, but because they train their women to regard themselves as no more than 3D printers of humans. When I once tried to suggest otherwise, several of my closest friends burst into tears from being overwhelmed by thoughts which they had life-longingly suppressed, and had not ever the cognitive bandwidth to process. This overly misogynistic lifestyle has led to a hunger for land and spacious residential development akin to the Sun Belt. My mother drove me everywhere. When she couldn't, my father did. When he couldn't, my grandmother did. When I became old enough, I did. My first day driving after a learner's permit nearly resulted in vehicular homicide, because who in their right mind would offer learner's permits for heavy machinery, including forklifts, backhoes, cranes, and automobiles, to the general public? All such equipment should be the realm of only trained professionals, not self-serving plebs. In this portion of my life, from roughly 13 to 16, there were three nascent and elementary kernels from which my comprehension of the built environment would later nucleate. The first kernel was when my family decided to walk one day from our McMansion-y housing development next to the abandoned Olympics-era hotel near the water park to Guru's Kitchen on Center Street, the only redeeming quality of Provo, Utah. It would normally take us only a ten-minute drive, if even. This one time we decided to walk, it felt like two hours. By the end of it, my parents were complaining, are we there yet? After a quick fact check, it was only 30 minutes. With supreme regret, I report that the abandoned hotel, the only element of character to the entire neighborhood, has since been demolished for yet another moron church of charisma akin to or surpassed by an am shack. Kernel number the two was when I, for the first time in my life, decided to go on my own to bicycle around town. It was a short outing by my current standards, but I was a dork and it was mostly around the Union Pacific Railroad Yard nearby my house. A particularly impactful moment was in attempting to cross a megastrode, University Avenue, from the inelegantly named West 920 South. 
Bleh. At the time, I wanted to go from the then-under-construction Provo station to the rest of the yard to harass railroad workers with inane questions of air brakes, but doing so required crossing nine lanes of high-speed travelway. I made it across safely, in an automobile travel lane no less, something which is routine to me today but which was then harrowing, and I have nothing but gratitude for how the motorists treated me, but that experience was an outlier. I have encountered many more an idiotic driver in my time on the roads thence, and had but one of them been there that day, I wouldn't be here. Bicycling as a young teen is a seminal part of the American upbringing, and here I was partaking in that, obscenely lately if you ask preceding generations. But for me, I was put in more danger than I've ever been in before in my life just to cross a road. Colonel Thirdly is more of a meta-colonel, but laid the groundwork for everything to come. My young childhood was in Southern California. I always knew there was light rail there, and I remembered being a proto-human in the backseat of a minivan, encouraging my mother to take that beautiful yellow and white train on the elevated alignment. But no, the only time I've ever yet to this day gotten to interact with this train was in the Grand Theft Auto franchise. When I lived in Utah, there was a similar system far to the north, and the sheer number of times we passed it by, no matter how many situations in which it may have been equally convenient, made clear to me a puzzlement. That we averted it without trying it once was decidedly not logical, but doctrinal. Through the window of a parked motor coach, whilst my sister partook in a taekwondo event, and whilst I worked on my Latin homework, did I vow to someday take such a train if ever I could in the future. Chapter 2. Concerned Citizens While I had a wonderful time from 14 to 16 at the dinky Utah Valley University, their lack of understanding of gifted and neurodiverse students literally, I got more acceptance from my Stanford Online High School exam proctor at the abominably theocratic BYU pushed me to apply for transfer to the University of Washington, one of the premier molecular biology research universities in the world. Though I had similar issues at UW, thank you very little Dr. Crow, and thank you very much Penn State for literally everything except your astronomy department, I was now affronted by a light rail system, similarly to in Salt Lake. But now I have a compulsory and unlimited access transit card courtesy of the university, practically begging for abuse. I started commuting through the downtown transit tunnel. I developed my incurable coffee addiction due to an obscenely talented Starbucks barista at 1201 3rd Avenue. I learned my way around the bus network through incremental exploration, and lo and behold, a multimodal transit evangelist I became. All while driving from a suburban house to a suburban park and ride, entirely bypassing my village's historic or commercial cores, because in America, apparently those are different from each other. So clearly, I wasn't there yet. But this newfound reliance on transit, if albeit from park and ride to commuter destination on peak hour, peak direction only buses, introduced me to the specifics of transit, of researching routes and schedules, of signing up for service adjustment alerts, and, most notably, of looking for local journalism on future word developments. Then, and even now, Seattle has the highest percentage of workers to commute by transit of any city in the U.S., at least in their central business district. However, don't get your hopes up. Despite having both commuter and light rail, most of these person trips were by bus. The three redeeming qualities of Seattle are that it had trolley buses, which, no matter how you cut it, are always better than battery buses, that it had BRT light-style routes with service every six minutes, even into the late night and early morning, and that it had extremely restrictive geography in the terms of hills and especially lakes, limiting trips to a few north-south and even fewer east-west directions, which is an unremittent boon for transit. 
especially for trans-starved North American city varietals. This doesn't exactly solve the single-family housing, lack of sidewalks, extent of suburban sprawl, narrow peak-hour peak-direction focus, low walkability of most practically anywhere but immediate close inexpensive and gentrified neighborhoods, unforgivable highway alignments of subsequent transit projects, over-reliance on buses and park-and-rides, or a veritable absence of any bicycle commute thoroughfares, so it's hardly any more a transit or urbanism mecca. But either way, whichever way, having so many workers commute by transit of any form, especially in a city known for such grassroots self-organizing as the famed Battle of Seattle, led to a lively groundswell of concerned transit riders. Enter the Seattle Transit Blog. Though I have since solidly soured on Seattle being anything remotely of an urbanist destination, and regard it now as more a fully stochastic phenomenon that accidentally stumbled on for a short period meaningful urbanism and neighborhoodly behavior, a magical period of time around, say, 2015-16 taught me a significant amount of what I know about transit. Riding buses, exploring places, all the while comparing it to driving, it was an extremely dynamic time in Seattle mobility, possibly the best and most hopeful time to be there. Subsequent major highway median light rail alignments, missing village cores, broke a lot of hearts and revealed the car-brained underbelly of sound transit, but for that brief moment, the Seattle Transit blog was less a group of concerned citizens and more a textbook in perfection written in concrete. Somebody must have left since then, somebody must have moved somewhere else, because now the STB is a shadow of its former self, but then... Then, it introduced me to the single most transformative element of my hobby life, DMU Transit. But more on that later. Chapter 3. A Paintbrush of Steel Buses are one thing, but trains are better. I always knew of the Seattle area's sounder commuter rail, but I always had scant reason to ride it outside of a few truly extreme excuses. But Sounder wasn't all there was. There was the beautiful Amtrak Cascades. Spanish-built, passively tilting Talgo train sets architectured by Cesar Vergara, a tremendously accomplished Mexican-American industrial designer. Not only did Cascades have push-pull train sets, not only was it in a charismatic, northwesterny, evergreen, espresso and cream paint scheme as opposed to sterile Amfleet syringes, Amtrak Cascades had something precious few other American trains have ever had. Design. The livery blended with, complemented, and reflected the cultural and natural landscapes it plied. When the locomotive passed, a green swooped up its cowls, then over and down onto the passenger cars by way of vertical wings, which gracefully married the height of the locomotive to the lower passenger cars trailing, all to be repeated by another mechanically mellifluous sweep back over, up, onto, and down again over the trailing NPCU cabbage. In the pantheon of rail style, this was and remains incomparable. While later renditions of these train sets criminally abated the wings, for a very brief time, in a very narrow place, one could travel the rails in a style not only equaling the former glory of days past, but surpassing it. Somewhere between Reagan's nine untruest words and the big dig, we lost our ability to dream. We went to the moon and came back with the idea that moonshots were a thing of the past. A collective generation forgot that things couldn't be just as good as they used to be, but that they could be better than they had ever been before. 
That is the world I live in, one in which I have been cursed by my forefathers to live a selfish, solitary life, devoid of the beauty that comes from people working towards a unified, pragmatic purpose, form following function but in an enchanting Ouroboros that feeds both ends with equal measure, but for a fleeting, delicate, exquisite moment. It was there. I never got to ride Amtrak Cascades as much as I wanted, but I went out of my way as much as I could to do so. A few trips back and forth from Olympia, a few to Portland, once to Vancouver, British Columbia, and many more times merely sharing a brief chat with magnanimous conductors trackside at Edmond Station, every time wishing I could live a life with more of this. But, in the American way, even this splendor succumbed to itself. The 2017 Point Defiance bypass crash killing three rail fans condemned the lighter weight original Talgos. Had only the US adopted European style train signaling and ATCS systems, allowing the safe operation of equipment lacking, quote, battleship like quantities of steel, unquote, this could have been avoided. But we are a miserly, irascible, frowsy society, our only defining virtue being mass. And so went the Talgos to the scrapper, along with the last dying hope of a future promised, but which never came. Chapter 4. A Walking Audit But I didn't know that yet. I was too young to appreciate the precious scarcity of what I was seeing in front of me. I was just a teen who liked choo-choos. If only I'd been born in the world that never was. At this time, I was starting to come off of the rails of the life that had been built for me, adventuring here, road tripping there, trying to find the time to camp with people who didn't match my wanderlustful erudition. But I was still stuck, physically and metaphorically, in the suburban mindset. Without what happened next, I wouldn't be who I am. The single most defining moment of my life goes thusly. One summer, I had it in me to gain undergraduate research experience at the VA hospital on Beacon Hill, south of Seattle. Instead of taking the bus to downtown and a bus up the hill direct to my destination, I, of course, being the high-standard nerd that I am, went massively out of my way to take the bus to downtown, the light rail south, and auspiciously the number 50 bus up Alaskan Way to the VA hospital, but invariably that latter segment came on criminal 90-minute headways such that I almost exclusively walked a full mile up the hill just to ride the light rail on a daily basis. One day, after completing my fascinating rat research earlier than expected, I had oodles of time at hand. I walked to the bus stop for the 50 bus, which arrived so infrequently as to effectively be a permanent ghost bus, but instead of walking down the hill to the east, I decided this time to walk west. Six miles, and two and a half hours later, I had walked through predominantly black neighborhoods, down strodes, under highways, through homeless encampments, and along industrial alleys. I have never before felt so in tune with the urban fabric that made up my city, and rarely have I since. And at the very end of this trip, I encountered a very tall, very beautiful trans woman of color. I mean, shit, this was 2014-15. If only she was mixed indigenous and left-handed, she'd have been hate-crimed less than a block later. But she was dressed to the nines, head to toe in pink, and exuding nothing but genuine smiles and kindness. This was years, hell, nearly a full decade before I came out myself, but that passing half-second interaction was enough to stick with me for years. So, if you think that representation or pride doesn't matter, I would love to show you a place by the name of Matthausen. Just pardon me while I run an errand on the way to get some gas canisters. 
That summer of riding light rail showed me how seamlessly yet pivotally transit could integrate with the communities it serves. It made me yearn for living a more transit-connected life. But that singular walk I took showed me what cities actually were, and how desperately they needed to be better, less car-oriented, more just. Chapter 5. Wrong Island In 2017, I moved to New York. I had a lovely interview experience, despite far too many red flags, both of the lab and of the region. Upon moving to a corner of the country which I hadn't been to since I was four, I was overcome by the need to explore it. I did so, of course, feverishly by regional rail, Amtrak, and car, in all directions, making it everywhere from Boston to Albany to D.C. before the winter even set in. But the thing that captured me the most, in part because it was so achievable, was riding every line of the New York City subway, along with New Jersey Transit and the Long Island Railroad, both of which remain, though mostly accomplished, incomplete. I still remember, to this day, asking a station agent at Broad Channel for a paper map by which I could measure my progress. But every single line I explored, every nook and cranny I poked my nose into, even every single surface neighborhood I partook of, I was profoundly assaulted by an air of inadequacy of physical plant and ineptitude in implementation. Rust, trash, ear-splitting flange screeches, bumps, bounces, inopportune wayfinding, and stations literally falling to pieces. While I was there, I even noticed block signaling by means of physical, mechanical devices trackside, not electronic systems. And not to mention the 2nd Avenue subway, which opened literally 85 years behind schedule and at a cost of just under $1 million per foot. It is the largest subway system on the planet, but from my experience, it is also one of the worst. Each line improved barely a day since it was opened just about a century and a half ago. For less than the price of a plane ticket to middle America, you can fly to any number of much more charismatic, functional, and enjoyable European cities. For NYC to be the premier city of the free world and synonymous with America to most Europeans brings me inscrutable shame. I'd be less shamed if car-dependent suburbia was the flagship of our country, rather than a place which values carbuncular megamalls for the uber-wealthy over filling in potholes and sidewalks less than a block away. New York and its suburbs are a classic case of resting on your laurels, and rest they have for decades. I lasted only 50 weeks there. The people and the built environment were so unpleasant I couldn't stomach the remaining two to say that I'd lived there a full year. I hate NY. Chapter 6. Intercity Passenger Trains So, being faced with all these experiences, and primarily wanting to put words to the phenomenon I was seeing in front of me, I became a self-educated urban planner. I read basically every Wikipedia article on every transit system in North America, even before RM Transit was a thing. I familiarized myself with each operation's quirks, I read blogs, I subscribed to YouTube channels, I listened to podcasts, I even purchased and read textbooks recreationally. Plug for Trains, Buses, People by Christoph Spieler. The second edition is riddled with typos, but visually stunning and compositionally immaculate. Between living in Newark, Newark, and grad school, I Amtracked across the country over nine days and seven nights. The Pennsylvanian to Pittsburgh, Capital Limited to Chicago, Empire Builder to Portland, Cascades to Seattle, Coast Starlight to Sacramento, California's Effort to Chicago, Capital Limited to Pittsburgh, and Pennsylvanian back to Altoona. 
Since then, I've added the Cardinal, Crescent, and Heartland Flyer to my repertoire, in addition to every route from DC to Boston and Albany, and will continue to add all routes and lines in a similarly compulsive and autistic bout of completionism. A particularly illuminating experience when I lived in New York City, which opened my eyes to the importance of state-supported non-Northeast regional corridors, I was once faced with the need to fly to Kalamazoo, Michigan to see a friend from Seattle whom similarly moved away. At the time, a direct flight was $515, decidedly unachievable to a very, very early career scientist. I, of course, however, found an excuse to make a train-related diversion, but what astonished me was the price. I flew to Chicago, got a bonus day in Chicago, took the Blue Water to Kalamazoo, saw my friend, took the Wolverine to Detroit, got a bonus day in Detroit, and then flew back to the JFK Mall, or airport, all for $242, less than half the cost of a direct flight, which, among other things, afforded me a hotel room for the trip. This experience opened my eyes to the secret weapon of passenger trains. A plane cannot make an intermediate stop in flight, unless, of course, you run an airline with software from the early 1990s. Sorry, Tracy. A train, however, can stop anywhere along the way wherever the conductor decides to plop down a step box, yet, though, fantastically still allowing participants to be passively and relaxingly transported to their destinations without a mote of stress. Whereas, however, driving requires 100% of your attention for every mile with decapitory consequences for a lapse thereof. And hence, we get Jim Matthews' succinct summation of passenger rail's most competitive aptitude. Too short to fly, too long to drive. Chapter 7, DMUs. During this time, though, in the absence of a need for the immediate effects of my life reported from the Seattle Transit blog, I continued to search and research and learn. Dating back to an article from 2015 by the STB hailing a hopeful change in FRA regulations allowing vehicles more inclusive than those lacking the aforementioned battleship-like quantities of steel, I became particularly enamored with the concept of Diesel Multiple Unit Hybrid Light Rail, or DMUs for short. The idea behind this is that, like proper electric light rail, you have tiny two or three truck vehicles, but unlike light rail's overhead catenary, with even tinier motors tucked away underneath each vehicle, such as to offer scalable and accelerable vehicle avidity. But, the singular most delicious aspect of this technology is that one could bring high-quality, frequent transit to existing urban rail routes for nary more than the cost of the vehicles and a couple of thousand cubic yards of concrete for platforms. The routes for these putative rail transit systems exist. The rails exist. Right now, today, any city with underutilized urban freight rail switching lines could instantaneously enact high-quality urban rail transit for, by my own calculations, a quarter of the cost of a lane mile of highway. And the evidence shows unequivocally that any dollar spent on rail transit is a dollar more effectively spent than on highway transit. When you become orange-pilled in this way, you cannot but look at literally any American city, look at its rail map, and not be haunted by what every city could be, but isn't. Not for lack of money, not for lack of route, not for lack of technology, but purely for lack of choice. The fucking tracks exist. I'm standing right in front of them. So why isn't there a station I could walk to and take a fucking train along them? They go where I need to go? I'm going to where I need to go? Why the fuck can't I follow them? Literally, the only reason why is because of DOT and municipal officials. Were it not for car-brained, red-pilled suburbanites, we could have as good as anywhere in the world for the low, low price of money. Gods damn it. <sighs> 
But, as far as model trains go, eventually coalescing my thoughts on light rail and streetcars first, intercity rail transit second, and mixed DMU freight railroad lines third, I, in that order, made presentations on the matter targeted at model railroaders, trying to share what I had learned with other hobbyists, the idea being that, for most of my research, certainly not all, but definitely many of these rail transit systems ran alongside two or on the same rails as many freight-carrying railroads. My thesis, modern transit operates intertwinedly with things that people already model. If, in all their recalcitrance and lethargy, at least some state and municipal DOTs could do it, then gods damn it, why haven't we? Much like the prototype concept, we could quadruple the use of any given track for a much more dynamic and exciting operating session for, again, the low, low price of only the vehicles and the platforms. Fucking hell. Chapter 8. Schweiss. By this point, obviously, a transit and walkability evangelist I'd already become. But what came next is what radicalized me. I went to graduate school in central Pennsylvania, the Rust Belt. My sister went to graduate school in Switzerland. I think I'm moving the wrong direction in my life. As could be imagined, I and every long-lost family member and distant friend imposed upon her for a private tour of the Alps in rent-free housing. I spent nearly two weeks there, riding throughout the country. For anyone who doesn't know, Switzerland has nationwide clock-face scheduling on half-hourly headways, and every single transfer for every single train between every single destination pair is meticulously scheduled between five and eight minutes. It is a nationwide stodpot reaching every town of any size, even mountaintops. If I already knew that automobility was problematic, this proved it entirely irrelevant. Let me be clear, there is, and ought to be, no need to have a car to get anywhere. Every excuse that you've ever heard of to the effect of America's different is complete bullshit spewed by small people with smaller minds and even smaller testicles. I've seen proof of that with my own eyes, and you could too with just one vacation. All of my thoughts on this have since been bolstered by a family vacation to Austria, Slovakia, and Germany, and were too by a subsequent trip to Italy despite their rampant misogyny and automobility. And, let me make this more pungent, I had no interaction with the Deutsche Phone world before 2022. I always wrote it off as the place of Nazis. But semi-recent political events at home and walking audits of the Alps have made me so fed up with American suburbia, have me feverishly learning German on Duolingo preparatorily, and have me atometrically close to applying for a job in Europe and never ever returning. The only dimension that Europe fails in is in LGBTQ issues in Jedi, which itself is a tacit boon, as it means that my presence there could actually do more to change things for the better than it could here. Chapter 9. But with every pull, there is a push. You might be thinking to yourself, why would they want to move away from the greatest, most powerful country ever? Well, among other things, I am sunsetting my graduate career at Penn State in State College, Pennsylvania, this time the ironically named Happy Valley, and with the closure of my education right up to the very forefront of what is known in biology, I find myself in the supremely privileged position to go for a postdoc at practically any place in the world that has a sufficiently impactful university. Yet, though, the question remains. With the world as my oyster, why am I considering leaving the largest and most powerful country in human history? 
Well, let me connect a few dots for those in the back of the audience. American suburbia is so bad, I am considering moving to a place where I will experience more discrimination just to get away from the suburbs. I am speaking from a position of, I admit, supreme privilege, both as a person who has an affluent family and as a person who has a promising career, which I can bring wherever I want, as well as someone who, in all likelihood, was gifted a promising career, which I can bring wherever I want by nature of having had an affluent family. But I would like to think that any rational actor in my position with my experience and knowledge would think similarly. I cannot, in good conscience, continue to give my tax money to a system which no longer deserves it. Who cares if Germany has a 42% tax rate? I know that basically every penny would be going to something more worthwhile there, except, of course, Deutsche Bahn's on-time performance, which is more than I can say for here. I might pay less in taxes, but thanks to utter nutbags ranging from neoliberal to neo-Nazi, I would get disproportionately less for it. And that's before we even get to the moral aspect of leaving America behind. One of my all-time favorite podcasters, No Illusions, put it so perfectly in a diatribe immediately following the election of Tronald Dump, I've gone back to it countless times, especially over those wretched four years. I've yet to find a better or more poetic encapsulation of what it means to be a modern American. Quoting directly from the 10th of November 2016 diatribe of The Scathing Atheist, episode 195, and used with permission. Namely that the election for the President of the United States of America was just won by Donald wall-building, Muslim-banning, disability-mocking, climate-change-denying, fat-shaming, pussy-grabbing, Franken-Cheeto Trump. I mean, seriously, guys, gals. What in the monkey shit just happened? How, how the fuck am I supposed to put words together now? I'm supposed to get on here today and not just see how long I can hold the U and fuck. I, what the hell do you want from me? I, I, I got some set of words that, that encapsulates the nuclear fuck tartary that just befell the world. Donald Trump is going to be president. That will always have happened, right? We will never make up for that. If every American went out tomorrow and cured a different strain of cancer, we would still be the country that elected Donald Trump to run it, who put Donald Trump in charge of the world's largest nuclear arsenal. This shit's going to be in history books. Our great, great, great grandkids are going to know about this and they're going to tell them that we already knew about the pussy grabbing shit before we elected him. I mean, re remember back when I was going to do jokes about the president having a vagina? <laughs> I was going to come out and I would say like more like over office and then you would laugh and we would move on to other shit. It was a simpler time. A time before Nate Silver could go fuck himself. Back when we were counting the 2018 midterms before they'd hatched. A time when we so radically underestimated the per capita stupidity of America that we never took the words President Donald J. Trump seriously. A time when we naively said there is absolutely no way that I am surrounded by the kind of frothing at the mouth shit for brains dingle tards it would take to elect Donald fucking Trump to the highest office in the country. I would have noticed how few of them got their pants on the correct appendages every day by now. 
But now we live in a different world, a more negligently stupid world. And the most terrifying thing about this world is that it is genuinely post-truth. You know, we just went through an election where one of the candidates would literally just make up whatever number he wanted, attach it to whatever problem he wanted, and then just carry on. And as we speak, four out of every two black people in Chicago is being murdered. And it doesn't fucking matter that even the most conservative media outlet you can possibly take seriously is saying, well, yeah, that's bullshit and it doesn't even make sense. Sorry about that. Because apparently the majority of voters don't care what's true. They live in a world where global warming is a myth and Jesus is going to save them and their biggest concerns are the mind control powder on their juice box lining and the yoga mats they put in Subway bread. And while I'll admit that this isn't the worst thing that's ever happened in all of human history, I feel like it's a pretty solid contender for the stupidest. It could lead to the worst. We've been running around here pretending we're smart enough to keep doing democracy even after the George W. Bush re-election thing. You know, we were all like, no, look, we did a black guy. He's a lawyer. He knows smart words. And we fooled ourselves into thinking we could be trusted around voting booths again. And make no mistake, if you're looking for somebody to blame, look in the fucking mirror. I know when I look there, I see a guy who has a political podcast. He kept on hiatus for an entire presidential election because he was too busy doing that other show about important stuff like what David A.R. White looks like a cartoon character fucked, which is admittedly probably not what you see when you look in the mirror, so maybe you can start by blaming me, but then look in the mirror and blame yourself, because when things are this fucked up in a democracy, it's too late to blame the candidates. You have to blame the electorate. And no matter how much you did, you obviously didn't do enough. So yes, I am talking to you too. Unless you're one of our non-American listeners, in which case I'm just glad you haven't stopped hanging out with us. I, and, and, and I apologize in advance for bombing your country when one of your late night comedians makes a joke about our president's sexual assault bravado. I mean, I'd love to just point at somebody and be able to say like, yo, it was all the, uh, it, was, it was the Christians or whatever. And then we could gang up on the real culprit. But in a case like this, there is no one real culprit and pretending there is isn't any way to solve problems unless of course those problems are voter turnout in the rust belt in which case it works just fucking fine look the real problem here is that we're a bunch of spoiled brats that have lived in a democracy that could essentially function on cruise control for a couple of decades we bitch about the system without realizing that we are the system now and despite all the evidence to the contrary we trusted americans not to do the most stupidly self-destructive thing they could possibly do now, don't get me wrong here. I am not trying to tack onto that tired trope that says we're all equally to blame for the 60 million people who actually went to the polls to vote for a misogynistic, white supremacist, sexual assaulter. There are certainly people who bear more blame than others. And if you happen to see a frightened white man pining for the days when brown people were easier to subjugate internationally when you looked in the mirror, you deserve way more derision than the guy who's thinking to himself, you know, I could have taken Ted to the polling station. Ted liked Hillary. Fuck. But when something is this broken, it is everyone's fault who has the remotest chance of fixing it and hasn't done that yet. But if you need a silver lining, I might have one for you. Because when it all is said and done, Donald Trump actually will make America great again. 
in about four years after we're done erasing all the progress we just made. See, look, he's going to teach yet another generation that you can't sit this shit out and trust the American people to vote sanely. He'll incense enough people to get Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress in the midterms. And assuming we make it through the next four years without a Twitter fight sparking an atomic holocaust, we'll rise from the ashes of this disaster with a populace that knows their democracy cannot function without their full attention. And look, the only other choice is that we keep going in this direction until we collectively stupid ourselves to death in a matter of about eight years. And I feel like at this point, both of those outcomes leave us with a better world. This is my native country. This is my America. We are not great. We barely ever were. Compared to other developed countries, our political polarization is high, our quality of life is low, our gun deaths are high, our survival rates to adulthood are low, our income inequality is high, our educational achievement is low. And why is this the case? Definitely not because old-fashioned small-town America had any virtues we've lost. In fact, that's exactly the problem. We've bought our own bullshit. The myth that anyone can become anything here. The myth that hard work means you earn a single-family home with 2.52 children and 1.88 cars. The myth that you're allowed to want that without thought for any of the consequences to anyone else. The myth that America is somehow exceptional. If we as a country ever were great, it's not because we could be great again, but that we tried to be greater than we ever were before. But we're not now. Because the Senate and Electoral College allow us to be held hostage by uneducated fucking hillbillies in a government set up for tyranny of the minority by pastoral fetishist and serial debtor Thomas fucking Jefferson. The reason why we are not great is the same reason why Chicago is better than New York. We rested on our fucking laurels. We had the name recognition and the ignoble status of being the biggest without ever stopping to ask if that equated to best. Throughout the past half century, we became complacent, self-absorbed, no longer defined by our progress, but by how much we bought into a myth of national identity that grew more stale with every leap and bound our developed neighbors surpassed us. That is the America I come from. In having traveled to all 50 states, that is, more often than not, the America that I see. There are parts of it that are worthy of attention, but dreadfully far too few to justify the empty birthright I was promised by airheaded elders. No wonder, with every millennial with a blog, with every Zoomer with a TikTok, with every irritated transit rider, with every incredulous biker, with every self-righteous undergrad yearning back to their semester abroad, with every dissatisfied lonely suburbanite, with every person who watches any anti-corporatism and anti-suburbanism movie or TV show from office space to severance without knowing why, with every potential person under the age of 30 with two neurons left to rub together do we yearn for a better world than the one we have inherited. Epilogue. There are many more chapters and sidebars to the story, not the least of which relating to bicycle commuting and touring, but that's for another time. For the purposes of this episode, where am I now?
Well, I'm a six-year graduate student sunsetting my tenure in central Pennsylvania. I'm currently split between sticking it out in this wretched hellhole of a country by fleeing with reckless abandon to one of its few salvageable corners, Minneapolis, Chicago, Sands, Diego, or Francisco, or Boston, or, at a stretch, D.C., Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Denver, Phoenix, or Charlotte, and spending my time and energy to improve the country of my birth. But I'm still perpetually haunted by memories of Freiburg and Breisgau in Baden-Württemberg, a green, climate-conscious city that defies description but by magical, a small town that deserves to be. Admittedly, the language barrier is daunting, but at least I won the ovarian lottery, und sprechen was der Westerwelt als welcher Sprache übernommen hat. Frankly, a lot of this will depend on job opportunities and stochastic chance, and it's otherwise a toss-up between improving my mother country in areas I care about, urbanism and trains, or going to an adopted country which is already near perfect in areas I care about and improving them in other ways I'm experienced in, LGBTQ rights and neurodivergence. Either way, whichever way, I've become a transit and municipal planner not by expertise, but by irate frustration. In the meanwhile, what am I doing with model railroading, and how does that relate to any of this? Well, suffice it to say, I got so annoyed I couldn't ride a train to all of my regional adventures that I decided to stop waiting for inane local and state governments and to build a damn train for myself, along with a walkable, mixed-use, climate-friendly, excessively urban environment. The only minor plan in my flaw is that I'm building the train in miniature. But that's for next time. This has been episode two of the Proto Future podcast, G4's story. Extra special thanks to No Illusions and the entire Puzzle and a Thunderstorm party for their permission to promulgate a portion of their previously presented poignantly profane punditry of our putrid polity on my pitifully pubescent publication. I highly recommend all of their podcasts, including The Scathing Atheist, from whence this diatribe was sourced, The Skeptocrat, which broadcasts from America's far center, God Awful Movies, which tackles the abomination that is Christian filmography, Citation Needed, which details some of Wikipedia's weirdest articles, and D&D Minus, a let's play of wacky Dungeons and Dragons fantasy worlds. All of their work combats the Sisyphean tide of stupidity with the time-honored remedy of mockery, and I strongly encourage you to give them a listen. The theme music for this episode is Spark of Life by Benjamin Lazarus through Tribe of Noise. If you would like to know more, you can visit the website at bgtmrring.org to listen to the manifesto, watch the Modern Modeling Clinic anthology, or read the free-to-access Patreon production blog, and please consider donating on a per-episode basis to help defer hosting and equipment costs. This podcast was written, recorded, and produced on the ancestral lands of the Susquehannock tribe. I would like to thank them for their historical stewardship of central Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening, keep riding trains, keep punching Nazis, and keep building a better future. Yeah.